I love that song. That was a uh, hymn that we had sung at, at our wedding. Angie and I were married on December 22nd, 2006, and so I've always loved Joy of the World. Uh, it just captures so much of, of, of my heartbeat for the gospel, for the church, and, and the hope that we have in life. Now, we're going to take a break from Romans. In the new year, we'll get back, uh, back into Romans 12 through 16. Uh, but for this Advent season, we're going to take a look at some Christmas hymns. And, and we sing these hymns every year. You go into the shopping mall, and, and here you are in a, in a place, and you'll hear Santa Baby, and then right next to it, you'll hear Joy to the World. So we can grieve Santa Baby, but we can also be glad that our, our culture is singing Joy to the World and Silent Night and all kinds of wonderful gospel-filled Christmas hymns all over the place. So we're going to take a look at some of these Christmas hymns uh, so that we remind ourselves what it is that we're singing. One of the dangers of these songs is the lyrics have become so familiar and so normalized to us that we can sing them almost from rote memory and, and not really remember what it is we're trying to express. We, we can just sing the words without knowing what it is that we're singing. So today we're going to look at Joy to the World, and then next week, God rest you merry gentlemen. And then hark the herald angels sing. And then, um, O holy night on Christmas Eve Eve. So you can put those hymns into your playlist and familiarize yourself with them. I joined Facebook uh, just over a year ago. And one of the things that I've noticed in that year that I've been on social media is how aggressively angry Christians can be about environmentalism. And I, I can't help but wonder if that's very good witness for us. And I understand that with environmentalism comes all kinds of other worldview implications. I, I understand that environmentalism in the secular world in, has become a religion that we have made a god out of the universe or environmentalism has at least one strand of environmentalism we can worship nature to the point where what is good for nature is better than what is good for the human race and i think some of the christian angst and anger about environmentalism is coming from that place nevertheless I can't help but wonder if being so angry at the environmentalists is a good idea for us to do. Is it a good witness? Is it in keeping with the gospel to be so angry about environmentalism? Should we be so against any idea that we should preserve nature, that we should look after the world that God has given to us? I don't think so. In fact, why can't environmentalism be a great beachhead for the gospel? Why can't we as Christians be leaders in taking care of God's good creation? Why do we have to be so angry at the non-believers who want to do the very thing that human beings were created to do, which is to have dominion? Good, benevolent, careful dominion over the created order. So I'm not asking you to worship nature, and I'm not asking you to agree with uh, any kind of environmentalism that, that glorifies nature or even animal rights over and above 
human rights, but I am asking that we in this church would consider what is the best way that we can bear witness to the gospel in those contexts. And I don't think it's by screaming louder and angrier than anyone else. I might wonder right now, we've come a long way from joy to the world, haven't we? Christmas? I don't think so. And if you actually listen to the words of this Christmas hymn, you would see that it is almost an environmentalist's anthem. This Christmas hymn. There's something embedded in this hymn that Isaac Watts, 300 years ago, as he was reflecting on Psalm 98, he was saying, you know, it's true that it's Christ came not only for people, but for all of creation. And that's why, this morning, I want to posit to you that Christians should be the world's greatest environmentalists and that Christmas should be a time when we celebrate God's promise to fix all of our environmental problems. We have a great message for the environmentalists. And our message is don't worship creation, worship the Creator. And reflect in on Christmas and the good news that Christmas is for the universe. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, as we take a look at this hymn and reflect in on your scriptures, I pray that you would give us a gospel for the environmentalists, the, the men and the women, the youth and the children who hate you, uh, the men and the women and the children and the youth who are worshiping nature, the men and the women and the youth and the children who put the rights of animals often above the rights of human beings. Forgive us, Lord, that we often scream at them, that, that we become angry and we miss just what a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel, that, that we too care about your creation and that it is our sin that has corrupted it. As we take a look at Joy to the World, I pray that you would embed creation theology into our celebration of Christmas because you sent your son into the world not just to redeem for himself a people but to take back the universe that we have spoiled with our sin. And all of creation will make a joyful noise. The rivers will clap. The forest will proclaim your goodness. The stars will sing your glory at the revealing of the sons of God. Help me to preach. Help us to receive this good word. I pray this with the name of Jesus Christ, who is the King of all creation. Amen. At Christmas... We celebrate that God became a man to save a sinful humanity from the wrath of God. That's, that's Christmas in a nutshell, right? The incarnation. God, who is a creator, be, joined us by becoming a man. And he did that so that he could die on the cross to save us, human beings, from our sin. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I've heard it, that we should uh, treasure people and only people because people and the Word of God are the only things that are immortal. Uh, people and the Word of God are the only things that will last forever. And that's just patently false. It's not even true. It's bad theology. You see, God made the universe and He said that it was good. Very good. 
And then he created us to take care of the universe, and we sinned. And because we are the crowning achievement of God's creative program, when, when the apex of creation, that is us, when the kings and the queens of creation, that is us, God's vice regents in the world sinned. When we fell, then all of creation fell with us. We spoiled God's good creation. So God came to redeem us, but in redeeming us, He's going to redeem creation. He's going to take it back. And Joy to the World reminds us that the gospel is so much bigger, that Christmas is so much bigger than God becoming a man to save us. That, that is true, and that's, that's glorious, and that might be the crowning achievement of the incarnation and of the gospel, but with the redemption of the human race comes the redemption of all of creation, the whole universe, which is under God's curse. At Christmas then, we celebrate that God became a man to redeem all of creation from the curse that God put on it because of our sin. Because of our rebellion, God caused the creation to rebel against us. And in so doing, He subjected the world to futility. That is, it doesn't work the way it was created to work to frustrate us, to bring suffering to us so that we would not live in an, in an Edenic paradise forever and fail to cry out for salvation. The pain in creation is for our good that we would cry out for God's redeeming power to save us and in saving us to lift the curse. That's why Christ came. To save us and in saving us. To lift the curse from creation. That's what Joy to the World is all about. Which is why, as Blair said, Joy to the World, which is this beautiful Christmas hymn, is really about the second coming of Christ. He came to secure the redemption at Christmas, which he secured 30 years hence, or 33, uh, by dying on the cross. But the consummation of that uh, redemption has not yet been fully realized. We have not yet experienced the fullness of the redeeming power of God in Christ Jesus. And when He returns, then the creation will cry out and worship the God who saves. Take a look at Joy to the World, verse 1. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. The Greek word for world is cosmos. And cosmos has two definitions. The first one is, well, you would imagine cosmos the universe, the creation, uh, joy to the world, joy to the creation, joy to the universe, joy to all that God has made. But, but the second meaning of the world cosmos is the human race. And theologically, the reason for this is because we are the crowning achievement. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We alone in creation bear God's image, and we bear God's image to represent God in the cosmos. So when Jesus says uh, that he came to the world to save the world, 
He's talking about us, but he's talking about the universe as well. Now, this Christmas hymn, then, explores both aspects of the word world. Let earth receive her king. That, that is not an ambiguous word. That means the planet. That, that means the soil, the topsoil, and the rocks, and the oceans, and the seas, and the trees, and the flowers, and the animals. Let earth, earth, receive her king. Christ is the king, not just of the human race. He's the king of the earth. He's the king of the Rocky Mountains in the Sahara Desert. He's the king of Mount Zion in Mount Everest. He's the king of the Indian Ocean and the Arctic Ocean. He's the king of the kangaroo and the antelope. He's the king of the lion and the lamb. He is the king of all the earth. Let earth receive her king. And if the earth, then Mars and Jupiter the Milky Way, and every faraway galaxy. Let this creation receive her King and Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became a man. But then you continue on in verse 1. Let every heart prepare Him room. The only heart that can prepare room for God is the heart of the human being. Now we know that angels, those who have not fallen, also worship God whether or not they have a heart the same way that we do I don't know but this lyric is directed at the human race let every heart prepare room for the king of the universe because we unlike the dog or the cat or the fish have the spiritual capacity to conceive of the greatness of our king That doesn't mean that Christ is not the king of the the cat and the dog and the fish. He is. Without getting into speculative theology, he's come to redeem every animal and every plant that has ever existed because he is the king who created all. But there's something about the human race where we can exhort one another, prepare your heart. Open your heart to the King. Receive Him. Stop your foolish rebellion against Him because He's coming. And He will reign over the universe that He has made. And so heaven and nature sing. Heaven reflecting in on the rational ability to worship God. Uh, The angelic and the human races. Heaven sings. Angels sing. And redeemed humanity sing that Christ is the King and God of the universe. But also nature sings. Nature sings. If Christ had stopped the children from proclaiming that He was the Redeemer, the Savior, He said even these rocks would cry out. Because Christ is not just the King of people. He's the King of of beaches and rocks. We see the same thing in verse 2. Both the human world and the created world are going to sing because Christ has redeemed us by becoming a man and dying on the cross and He will come back to reign over that which He has saved. Joy to the world! The Savior reigns! Let men their songs employ while fields, 
and floods and rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. This, this song is about the return of Christ. He's already Savior here. This presupposes the death of Christ on the cross. It presupposes his physical, bodily resurrection and glory. It presupposes his ascension into heaven. It presupposes all of the history that has come and gone from his first to his second coming. And it is declaring the return of the Savior. It is declaring that the one who came as a lamb to die for the sins of the world is coming back as a lion to reign. He's coming back to reign as king. And at that time, men, that, that means the human race, will employ their songs, but not all men. It's only those who have listened to the exhortation of verse 1. Uh, Let every heart prepare him room. If, if your heart has prepared him room, then when he comes back to reign, then you will sing, you will proclaim and employ songs of worship for Christ your King. And then the universe will be displayed in all of its glory and the curse will be lifted. And finally, fields and floods and rocks and hills and plains will repeat the sounding joy. And there will be no more hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. And all will be paradise and perfect. And nature itself will without end proclaim the glory of God in a way that we have never, ever witnessed. Because it will be made new. So we see again joy from the human race. Joy proclaimed by creation. Because Jesus is the Savior of people. And when he saves people, he comes to take back the world. You know what's amazing is when we have what's called uh, an anthropocentric hermeneutic. That sounds fancy. Anthropos means human being. Centric means focus. So when we think about the gospel only in the terms of human beings and we read the Bible just looking at what good is there in the gospel for the human race, we miss so much. And we begin to rage at the environmentalists. And we miss the opportunity to say, I care about creation. I was made to care about creation and to share a gospel of God redeeming nature. Jesus Christ came to save human beings. When the human race is lifted out of our sin, then there's no reason for the curse to remain on nature. And then we'll see the glory of nature like we've never seen it before. When we get to verses 3 and 4, we see an alternation now between... Um, nature and the human race. So verses 1 and 2, we have both the human race and nature together in each verse. Now all of verse 3 is focused on nature, and all of verse 4 is focused on people. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. When Christ returns the second time, he's lifting the curse and his blessings will flow. There will be no more curse. 
Verse 4 focuses on people. He rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. So when, when nature is the way it should be, and the nations are gathered to Mount Zion to worship him the way we ought to, then all will be right in reality. And we will sing of the wonders of his love. I want to end our time by focusing on verse 3. What I, my goal is, as we, as we take a look at this verse, is that this Christmas we would reevaluate what we, th- what we thought Christmas was about. That, not that we would throw away what we know it is about, God becoming a man, God coming to die in the person of Christ on the cross to save us from our sins, but just expand it. Expand your gospel this Christmas. Ex- expand what you celebrate through the Advent season and on Christmas Day. And begin to anticipate, begin to long for a a creation where there is no curse. And then begin to think through how you will respond to to the men and the women and the youth and the children who are environmentalists. That that I'm not saying that you've screamed at them, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Christians who who just say, uh, you know, to, 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 well, I was going to say a bad word, to, to curses with the environmentalists and environmentalism, we could maybe say, well, no. We've got a gospel for that. And totally rethink our politics, our witness, our evangelism, and begin to see that the gospel is about more than just you and me. We begin then, if we're going to unpack verse 3, No more let sins and sorrows grow. Sorrow in the natural order is because of the sin of human human beings. And because of our sin, thorns have infested the ground. This is a gospel truth that we don't often dwell on, but it's crucial. And we just see it in Genesis 3, 17-19. Genesis 2, just to contextualize this, or Genesis 1 and 2, we see that creation is bountiful, and it's good, there's no curse, and it's glorious. But then those to whom God gave dominion to to take care of the natural order, we sinned. Therefore, God cursed the, the serpent, Satan, cursed the woman, Eve, cursed the man, and in cursing the man also cursed the universe. Because we are so connected. That's the other thing. When we disconnect ourselves from nature, well, that's bad theology. We were made to reign over nature. So when we disconnect ourselves from nature, and I, I can't help but think of technology. Technology is good, but one of, the, one of the downsides of technology is it's disconnecting us from nature. It's disconnecting us from our uh, creation mandate to reign to have dominion over nature, to care about the natural world. And so we're becoming callous and cynical and aggressive with pagans who better understand the foundational reason that human beings were created in the first place. The irony is so thick. But in cursing Adam, God cursed the universe. You see the interconnectedness there between humanity and nature. 
In Genesis 3, 17 to 19, this is what God said to Adam. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. Why are there natural disasters? Because of the sin of the human race. It's cursed because of us, our forefather Adam. This has bad consequences for us. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field, but by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You know, one of the greatest curses in the natural order is death itself. Trees die. Flowers fade. Animals die. Animals attack one another. Human beings die. We attack one another. We're afraid of animals. We were made to have dominion over the lion. But if I let a lion loose in here right now, we are all in competition for that door. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's the curse. From dust we were made, and to dust we will return because of the curse. Now here's the thing. If our gospel is anthropocentric, I'm trying to teach you that word, human-focused, if the gospel is only about redeeming human beings, then it means that we can steal from God. We can rob God of His good creation. We can, we can take a universe that God created and sat back and said, it is good, oh, it is very good. And we, by our sin, can corrupt it. And in our arrogance, we can profess a gospel that says, save us and throw away the universe that we have ruined. Throw away the universe that we have corrupted. Throw away the universe that you have cursed because of us. That's arrogant. And underneath it, it says that we can steal from God. The whole universe belongs to God. But if, if the gospel is just for us, if the gospel is not for the universe, if the gospel is not for every animal that has ever lived and every tree that has ever blossomed, then we've stolen from God. We've said, by our sin, we will rob you of your good creation and you'll throw it away. But that's not the gospel. Jesus Christ came to take back the universe that we corrupted. And praise be to God that in spite of us, he exalts us above every creature, including the angels. The curse is our fault. And he'll exalt us above even the angels to reign over a new heavens and a new earth. The prophets understood this. When the prophets were looking forward to the, the coming of God's salvation through the Messiah, they didn't just prophesy about nations and people. They prophesied about creation. In Isaiah 27, we see this. Isaiah 27 is a prophecy of Christmas. But more than Christmas, that which Christmas achieves, the redemption of the human race, 
and the reign of God on earth. In Isaiah 24, we get that great and final day of the Lord, the final judgment against the whole world. And we see the whole uh, world being twisted and judged and emptied and shaken. But then God begins to put things back into order. In chapter 25, uh, he raises us from the dead and hosts a feast on Mount Zion. And then look at chapter 27. It begins with the defeat of Satan and the destruction of Satan. Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day, on the day that the Lord returns, uh, with his hard and great strong sword, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. I believe this is Jesus. On the day that Jesus comes back, he's going to deal with the serpent who led the human race to sin, which introduced the curse against creation. And when that serpent, the devil, is dealt a final blow in that day, verse 2, a pleasant vineyard. Oh, sing of it. In Isaiah 5, we're told that God is going to allow his vineyard to be plundered. But here, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper, and every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Look at this, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Oh, let them make peace with me. What Isaiah is foretelling here is on the day that Jesus comes back, having already saved us by becoming a man and dying on the cross, ascending to heaven, after he comes back, he punishes Satan, Leviathan, that twisting serpent, that ancient dragon. He throws him into the lake of fire, and then the universe becomes a pleasant vineyard. Oh, sing of it. And there's no more curse. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. It's a direct reference to the curse. There is no curse. There's no curse for the Lord to battle. All we have is a pleasant vineyard. And in verse 6, in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Jacob, representing Israel, will lead the nations in having dominion over God's pleasant vineyard, and we will take root with Jacob, and we will fill the universe with pleasant fruit. Not thorns and thistles. Pleasant fruit. The curse will be lifted. But how does Jesus redeem creation? He does it by dying for the sin of humanity. Creation is under a curse, as I said, for only one reason. Because we sin. God has put the curse over creation so that we would cry out for salvation. If we lived in a perfect, glorious universe, we would not cry out. But we do because we are constantly feeling the effects of the curse, the death in our life. Uh, on Facebook, there's some good things on Facebook. Uh, Sarah Bell actually pointed this out recently, and I so so brilliant, beautiful. Jesus was crowned with what? A crown of thorns. Why? 
because he's the king of all creation. The crown of thorns, he was crowned with the curse because he's the king not only of Adam and Eve, but of Eden and of this earth and all of God's creation. And so God put him a, a crown of thorns on him. He was crowned with the curse issued against this world and that crown came with a promise not just for us but for all of the universe that when Christ returns there will be no thorns he died with a crown of thorns for the sake of the natural order we read about that in Mark 15 17 so if Jesus died to redeem creation from the curse why is creation still under the curse there are still natural disasters, floods and typhoons and earthquakes. There's still plagues and mosquitoes and all kinds of awful things. So if, God, if Jesus died to redeem the creation, why are we still feeling the, the, the pain of the curse? And that is because the consummation of the gospel is yet future. Why do we still have to die though we've been saved by Jesus Christ? Because He hasn't yet returned. The Savior will return to reign and then there will be joy to the world. When the Savior reigns, we learned about this already in Romans 8. Creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That, that is, the creation is waiting for Jesus to return so that we, the sons of God, men and women, will be resurrected in bodily form from the dead because at that moment, there's no reason for the curse to continue. The creation's waiting for that great consummation of our gospel when Jesus comes back and we are raised from the dead. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subject, subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When we receive glory, then the creation will be glorified with us. For we know that the whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth even now. So, but this is a gospel fact that, that the, the return of Christ means our own resurrection from the dead, but it also means restoration and the lifting of the curse for our universe. So what will it be like? Will it be like the Garden of Eden? Sort of, but so much better. You see, we're moving forward to a new heavens and a new earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, and this is the end of the Bible, the, the end of our gospel is the glorification of this universe. In, in 2 Peter 3, we're told that, that because of the curse, the universe will be consumed in fire, but then it will be resurrected physically. Just as we die and are resurrected, so nature will die because of our sin and be resurrected in glory. And qualitatively, it will be superior to, it, to uh, the way it has ever been before. Because God himself will put his dwelling place on earth. 
and the footprint of the universe will be the same because Jesus, the same body that was nailed to the cross, the same body that was buried, the same, was the same body that was raised from the dead. And, and our bodies, uh, this body will die and be put in the ground, and it's this body that will be raised in glory, qualitatively superior, but quantitatively the same. So this universe, why is it so big? Because this is our eternal dwelling place. And though it will be consumed with fire, so we can't say drill, baby, drill, because it's going to burn, baby, burn. But we do what we can do to even now exercise good dominion over nature, trusting that where we fall short, when the Savior reigns, there will be joy among the human race and among God's nature. We read about this in Revelation 21 and 22. I'm going to read the first five verses of both chapters. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What is that? That's the resurrected universe. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, that's heaven, coming down out of the sky from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Go over to chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed. The curse is lifted. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him and they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Wow. Will there be a sun? Will there be a moon? Will there be stars? Yes, there will. Just read that carefully. There will be no need for the sun, moon, and stars in the sense that we don't need their light because for the first time in all of reality, this ne it was never true in Eden, God in all of his glory will live inside the cosmos that he created. No longer that separation. That's why everything and everyone will be holy. All that God has made will be set apart as holy. We will be in the very same realm as the eternal God. 
And with him comes the inapproachable light, or the unapproachable light. No one has ever seen God because he dwells in a light that is too bright. Anyone who dares step into that light will be incinerated. Think about going toward the sun. Well, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they'll still be shining as bright or brighter than they ever have, but the whole universe from here to there to everywhere will be filled with the light of God's glory. And we will dwell with Him forever. So this Christmas, just remember that there's so much more to the gospel than getting out of hell. The gospel is glorious for each of us individually. And yes, we get spared the the judgment we deserve. We, We get spared the eternal death and the lake of fire. And yes, we get to be resurrected in glory, bodily from the dead. And, And yes, we get to reign over the angels. But more than that, we get to reign and, and exercise dominion over the universe and we will see it in a way that we've never seen it before. And so we sing, joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground because he comes, Jesus comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found He's going to rule the world with truth and grace. He's going to make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you that the gospel is for all of creation. You have saved not only us, but everything you have made We long for the day when our Savior comes to reign to take back the cosmos. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.